2: What's up, Internet? And welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardwar.
1: I'm Deputy Editor Sherlyn Lowe.
2: Today, we've got some very exciting stuff lined up. We will be talking about the James Webb Telescope with some of our favorite science journalists. And we'll also be diving into the insane, wild, huge Microsoft Activision Blizzard deal that was just announced this week, too. Deskonda is going to be joining us for that. As always, if you're enjoying the Engadget Podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast of choice, Leave us a review on iTunes. That's always a big, big help. And uh, you can join us live Thursday mornings, typically around 10 a.m. Eastern, on our YouTube channel. Hey, I just want to take a moment to congratulate everyone. Another banner day for JWST. In particular, the secondary mirror deployment folks. You guys did a heck of a job. This is unbelievable. We are now at a point where, as I looked up before, we're about 600,000 miles from Earth. And we actually have a telescope. So congratulations to everybody. We have a telescope. The, those are iconic words, you know, among the many, many space speeches we've, we've probably heard in our lifetimes. So we will be talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a big, big deal, something that's been worked on for decades, something I know a lot of astronomers have really been looking forward to. And joining us to kind of figure out what is going on with this thing and what it means for us is Tarek Malik, Editor-in-Chief of Space.com. Hello, Tarek. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hello. And Swapna Krishna, space science and technology journalist uh, all over the place. You write for Engadget and Wired. Hello, Swapna. Hello. Hello. So I want to thank you both for joining us. And also, how, like, how are you guys feeling about James Webb right now? Because this thing, whenever I talk to anybody who's interested in space, they are kind of on like pins and needles. Uh, They're very scared about things going wrong. They're very excited about, like, how far we've come so far. Can you guys tell us, like, um first of all, what is the James Webb Space Telescope? And, uh, you know, how are you feeling about the progress so far?
3: Well, I I, I guess to, to start off with, the James Webb Space Telescope is, I guess, simply the largest space telescope ever built. Um, it's uh, about five times the size of the Hubble space telescope. It's supposed to look farther into the past than ever before, possibly even seeing the the first stars and, and, and galaxies or that first light at least. Uh, and the hope is that it's going to unlock a lot of the, the secrets of what makes the universe that we, we see today. Uh, and it's also a technological feat. It's the size of a tennis court that they folded up like an origami, uh, uh, construction kit. Um, and they launched it on a rocket and it's, um, it's just quite, quite simply, the scariest telescope I've ever seen launched. Um, bit, bit of bit of FOMO. I was supposed to actually go to the uh, uh, the, the actual launch oh, man. operations no. uh, in Baltimore. Basically, the the clip that, that uh, you mentioned where they were talking about it—that's where we were supposed to be. Because they delayed it onto Christmas, it really just did not mesh up, and we had a, a lot of transportation delays Aww. at that time too. Um, and so, so that was kind of a. a uh, a bittersweet moment you know you you follow this mission for uh, it's been uh 20 years now uh and then uh, at the end of it you you kind of can't be there for that that home run that they hit out of the park there
1: So were you able to go did were you were you gonna go
4: I would have loved to go but <laughs> the constant delays and childcare like if Ugh. in a vacuum I would have been in French Guiana in a heartbeat but oh, man. just With the constant delays of this telescope, (laughs) I had no, like, I had no faith that it was actually going to go up before 2022. So I am so glad it did. Um, I feel like we've been terrified the first couple of weeks. Um, and now, like, when I saw you re-air that clip, I got really emotional and I almost started crying. So
2: many, so many feelings. Yes. I'm a, what? Yeah, I'm a glass wall of emotion or whatever the anchorman thing is. <laughs> um, You mentioned French Guiana, Swapna. So I just also want to, people may not know, but Europe's uh, launching pad is in French Guiana in South America, right near the equator. I always love uh, hearing about things that launch there because I was born a couple countries away in Guyana, so it is it is cool that science stuff is happening like all over the world, and nobody ever talks about French Guyana, so that is you know that's super cool. Um, so yeah, Swapna, like, what is your take on James Webb? Um, because I know you've you follow this quite a bit, but also you're you know you're of a different generation too. Like, are you expecting us to be doing more when it comes to like space coverage? Because s- Hubble is so old, you know, so many of the things we rely on are so old, and it feels like we have not really progressed too much scientifically or like technologically in decades, you know?
4: Yeah. And I think part of the big fear was of this telescope specifically is it's a once in a lifetime thing. If one right. thing didn't right. work, this was this was the chance we were going to get. Like, this is it. If this didn't work, you know, it's taken what this telescope has been development for 30 years. I think the original launch date was like year was supposed to be 2007. Oh, um this was our chance and so there's a lot of relief um a lot of relief that it seems to have been going so well so far and um also yeah Knock on i wood
2: think, cross fingers i know everything. yeah it's yeah.
4: not we're not out of the woods yet um it's easy to feel a lot of um you know and we do feel a lot of relief because a lot of the hard stuff is over but there's still there's still a lot to do um but yeah i'm very eager to see what JWST will send back. I'm a little. This was a very expensive telescope, um, <laughs> ten billion dollars. Yeah. I'm I'm curious and a little bit anxious to see what the response to what we get is. Um, there's a lot of questions, especially right now with what everything that's going on. Was do we really need a ten, $10 billion dollar telescope? And like, as a fan of space, as someone who covers space, I'm like, yes, of course we need it. But, you know, I really, really hope that once we start getting data back from it, people will see the need for science for science's sake.
2: Gotcha. And, um, you know, speaking of hard stuff, Swapna, like we we've talked about like how delicate this is. I believe the reporting is there are 344 points of failure for launching this telescope, operating this telescope We've cleared a lot of those because they've uh, unfolded the mirrors. It is like uh, right now it's moving towards its permanent orbital spot. What, yeah, what else is left to do? And what are the things people are worried about, you know? going forward for the James Webb telescope?
4: Um, There's still, there's still a lot to do. We're still not at Lagrange point two yet. So did we still have to get there? I think the goal is um, Sunday, I think Monday now, and it still has, I think one final four minute burn before it gets to insert itself into orbit. And then there's a really long process. We're not going to see the first uh, data back from this telescope uh, science data, at least for five more months. You know, there's they have to focus, calibrate, you know, align the mirror, which is going to take a really long time, and um, there's still a lot left to do. It's
2: like it is like a giant camera, and now we have to dial in the focus meter. Like I can just that is kind of wild. Uh, you also mentioned something Lagrange point two, Swapna, Tarek. What what is that? Why is it important for? James Webb to get there.
3: This this is the the really weird thing about not just this mission but several others that are like it is that in in order to, to kind of get the science that the the researchers want to do they need to be in a place that is you know fairly fairly out there in deep space um, but reachable from the rockets that we've got uh, today uh, and and a place where they can keep the the telescope cool. This is primarily James Webb an in infrared telescope. It's not going to take, you know, a, a pretty visible light picture of Mars that we might see from Hubble and whatnot. So they've picked this place called the Sun-Earth Lagrange Point 2. It's about a million miles uh, from, from Earth on the opposite side of the sun. And it's just like a space. It's just, there's nothing there. It's just an empty space. Like a but blank parking spot
2: in our orbital it, area. Yeah. Exactly.
3: If you're, if you're driving on a highway and there's just like a random parking spot, There's nothing around it. That's what this is. Maybe a couple of cars. There's a few spacecraft that we've sent there before. Uh, And basically, it's a stable point that they can orbit around it just because of gravitational uh, uh, effects between the Earth and the sun. And they can stay there for a good long time. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to go to that point. They're going to set it up so that the, the sun is behind this tennis court size sunshield that, that James Webb has, which will keep all of its science instruments super, super, super cold. The colder they are, the better they can detect just the faintest heat and, and radiation from the stars around them. Uh, and that's what they're hoping to see. Um, it's, uh, as I mentioned, it's about 21 feet across the main primary mirror, uh, and the goal is to use that light collection um, uh, a divi- uh, uh, area to collect these this really low... Uh, uh, a wavelength light from the earliest parts of the uh, the, the universe.
2: Gotcha, and yeah, let's uh, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. Actually, so conceptually, like uh, at a big picture level, Tark and Swapna, like what is James Webb doing that Hubble can't? Right, I, I seem to recall that there is a limitation in terms of like how far Hubble can see because of where it is, and it. You know, it's relying on visible light, whereas James Webb has infrared techniques. Um, It it has an infrared camera. It can see much further back. But what does that mean? You know, it can see the formation of stars, I believe. Like, uh, that's what I've been reading.
4: So we're hoping that um, once it's operational, we'll get to see the first light. Um, Tariq mentioned this earlier, like the first stars and galaxies that formed after the Big Bang, after the period of reionization, which is when the universe was this like opaque primordial soup. um, The first light of stars is what ionized the universe and made it clear, like, you know, so we can see starlight from here.
2: How, how far back th- is that like 100 million years after the big bang like what is the time scale I we're believe
4: it's uh I, I believe it's like 400,000 years to a million years okay after the big bang and so that's what we're hoping to see um basically okay. that would be like the I feel like the holy grail of uh JWST to be able to see that far back
2: gotcha gotcha and uh what sort of equipment does James Webb have that kind of helps it uh, see this far back, right? So it's seeing it has infrared that Hubble doesn't have. Uh, it has a much larger mirror, from what I could tell. But we're seeing things like NERCAM and NERSPEC and MIRI. Uh, what are the tools it has on
3: board? Well, James Webb, it has four primary instruments. Most of them are all just these really sensitive infrared cameras. And what, what they can do, like if, if we compare it to uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, so you've got Hubble. First of all, much smaller. Um, Hubble's uh, um, uh, uh, main main light collection area is um, is about. I think I mentioned this about about one fifth the size of what what James Webb has. Hubble can see invisible light, and then an ultraviolet light, and then in kind of like the 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 upper levels of infrared light. And what James Webb can do with these four instruments is see a little bit of visible light, like the very reddest of the red, uh, but then go very, very deep down into the really low uh, 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 infrared signals with all of these these detectors co- um, uh, combined. And that is what allows them to not just look at this, this epoch of reionization, is what they call it. You can imagine the early universe being just this dark place because it's just electrons and protons and neutrons. Nothing is sticking together. Then it all starts sticking together, and that's when stars are born. Uh, and so they're hoping that to be able to, to use these instruments to see that, that first light or as close to it as they can. They can also uh, use that infrared te- uh, te- uh, detector's to possibly even see the atmospheres of extrasolar planets as they pass behind or passed in front of stars behind them. Um, and they can also fine tune them in our own solar system to look at the atmosphere of uh, uh, the, the big planets, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus, and Neptune. Um, look at these weird gas plumes that are coming out of some of the icy moons around those, those planets uh, and see what's in those too. So they're, they've got a lot of versatility between our own solar system uh the the planets that we're seeing out uh out uh, across the galaxy and then maybe even deeper back to the birth of the uh the universe
2: gotcha um you were mentioning extrasolar planets how is that how is that different from the way we're detecting and you know um uh, just Learning things about extrasolar planets right now because I have a distinct memory of being in science class in like the mid '90s and just asking my teacher, like, so wait, we don't know about any planets outside of our solar system?" And she just kind of shrugged, and was like, "Ah, I, I, I guess not." And then a couple of years later, we started discovering the first extrasolars and. How are the techniques we were using then compared to like what James Webb is going to be able to do?
3: Well, I, I guess you know one one of the the big uh, uh, advances now. Now, as you mentioned in the early nineteen nineties, we had we didn't know of any. Now we know of thousands. Maybe, it's wild to me. Uh, Just <laughs> hey, they're there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and one of the the interesting things that James Webb can do is it really can follow up on on those those findings. NASA had um, a space telescope called Kepler. Basically, taking snapshots and finding all of these planets, maybe getting a little bit of data. Hubble can see some of that infrared signals from uh, from these planets, but just not the detail that that James Webb is hoped to be able to do. Uh, and so that is kind of its its ace in the hole is that it can just look deeper and and farther than ever before, uh, and with much more detail. Now they don't know what they're going to find, um, and it's possible that as Swapna alluded to, you know, and hopefully I'm going to knock on my desk here. Mm. Uh, That it doesn't happen, but it's possible something might surprise them on how the telescope works. As it's designed, it's supposed to be able to uh, really just look uh, uh, much more detailed at those atmospheres and see, you know, is there water vapor there that this other signal might have hinted at? So you'll see a lot of people doing science on Hubble now that they can then follow up with with James Webb to confirm that they can that's be complementary
4: really is the whole mm-hmm. thing like as long as Hubble lasts like knock on wood <laughs> or poor telescope they can work together which is going to be really fantastic
2: that's that's really exciting so what what can we learn by knowing more about the atmospheres of these planets too right so, so we've gotten some vague hints like oh this may be a habitable earth like planet you know close to the sun would James Webb be able to confirm some of those things? Would it be able to detect, hey, elements of potentially life on these planets?
4: So I think one of the big things that it will be able to do is, um, for example, if you look at the Earth's atmosphere, um, we have artificial elements in our atmosphere, like CFCs is a big one that created the hole in our ozone. Um, um, JWST is going to be sensitive sensitive enough to kind of detect these kinds of elements. So if we see you know artificial elements in a planet's atmosphere, that probably means that there's intelligent life there. More like more likely than not that's like let's that's <laughs> probably not going to happen. It, one can dream, uh, but I think it's more um exactly what Tariq was saying like It's just more sensitive. It's going to be able to give us more data. It's going to be able to pick up more light. And NIRCAM is going to have a, I think it's called a coronagraph, which will actually block the light from stars to be able to see this stuff better. Because right now, uh, you know, the light from stars is very overwhelming and it's very hard to see exoplanets, to see them. And so um, JWC is going to be able to do that really much, much more effectively, I think.
3: Just to build on that real quick, you know, there's there's this Star Trek... uh, uh, um, uh, fantasy that where we where we look at you know we open our sensors and we see this M class planet yes, and that M class yes. planet where yeah we can just beam down and do that and uh, uh, the one of the big questions that I have had is like what makes us so special you know there's other planets there's in our in our solar system not all of them have atmospheres but we know that there are some out there beyond that have them and uh, just getting a, a, a sense of how are those atmospheres could they could we live in them that's what what I'm hoping James Webb is going to give us at least a snapshot of. Uh, it's a big job. A lot of planets out there to look at.
2: Gotcha, gotcha. Um, what kind of things are beginning to happen right now? We're waiting for Games Web to reach orbit. What do we expect to see from it, right? Like what are the first glimpses of the results that we'll be seeing? Are we expecting like beautiful, I don't know, uh color accurate renderings? Or are we expecting like uh infrared signals or something? Like what do you guys think NASA or will actually be showing off for this thing?
4: Well the first things we're going to see are fuzzy blobs (laughs) because they have to focus the instruments. Um, and that mirror, you know, it's 18 different segments aligning that mirror. So it functions as one giant mirror instead of, you know, 18 separate mirrors is going to be so hard and so tedious. So, um, I think they're, they, they have picked an area that they're going to focus on in order to do those kinds of that kind of like first imaging. I don't know if they're actually going to release those images though.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think the the really interesting thing about this mission is we live in that's different from the Hubble, for example, and when it was launched in nineteen ninety. we've got Twitter now, we've got Facebook, we've got Instagram. We live in a in a time where if you put a camera in space, you want to see stuff. From, yeah, we like, want right to see stuff. Now. Yeah, and 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 uh, and so what NASA has been really careful to say is it's going to take six months, like half a year. To basically focus this this telescope, and then when they take the pictures, as Swapna mentioned, they're not going to be all that great. And because they're not great, they don't want to really, just, you know, say, "Hey, here's the here's the first pictures, and and it looks like you know three 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 blobs of light that you can't you can't even tell what it is." They want people to to know what they've paid ten billion dollars for, <laughs> <laughs> and so they've been a little cagey. About saying what they're going to look at scientifically for that first science image, they say they've got a list. They're not telling us what's on it, but they're saying it's going to be amazing once they get everything uh, up and running. So, right until then, we—I I just checked—it's eight hundred and fifty-nine thousand miles away right now, and and that that's getting uh, a, a bit uh, a larger every second. So we just have to wait and see.
2: Oh, you could do it. We're we're all rooting for you, James Webb. You know. <laughs> in just yeah studying what NASA has done in the past also i don't know uh, one of my favorite shows right now is um is the apple tv sp- uh, show for all mankind which is entirely about an alternative universe where uh Russia won the space race and that kind of accelerated space technology and space travel and you know building stuff on the moon stuff that we didn't do you know so I'm wondering, like, um, will this, if this is successful, do you think this could lead to more interesting, um, I don't know, space experiments or more investment in it? Because it also seems like uh, a lot of this is like a public real, uh, public relations thing for NASA, right? Like, they want to show us the good images to prove that $10 billion was worth it and maybe to prove that we should do more. Um, yeah. Where do you guys think uh, this will all lead? is my main thing. And how much do you think, like, yeah, the PR aspect of it is important to NASA and the space agencies?
4: I mean, I think the PR aspect of it is very important because it's really hard to do science for science's sake.
3: Yes. You can argue
4: Uh that a lot of the crewed missions we're doing, the ISS, all of that is practical. There are practical, you know, benefits. We see them every day. You know, if the number of inventions that came from the Apollo missions is incredible. So there's practical... You know, there's practical applications for something like JWST, which is just science for science's sake. There could be one day practical applications. We could find the next, you know, Earth or something like that. But generally speaking, it's a lot harder to make that case. So I really do think it's a very big deal. Like it is a big PR thing. And in some ways, NASA really needs to, you know, get the gorgeous images that really capture people's imagination about space in order to make the case that science for science's sake is worth it.
3: And to build on that, you know, uh, Devinder, we're never going to see farther into the universe until we build ginormous telescopes. Um, And until now, the biggest thing that we could put in space was the Hubble Space Telescope, launched 30 years ago plus, you know, Uh, and that was the best that we had. And largely, we just didn't have anything bigger to put in space, uh, any rockets that could do it. What this mission has shown is that you can build... A telescope in pieces, deploy it in many different intricate steps in space, uh, and then have what hopefully will be a working thing. The fact that nothing went wrong in this like horrifically scary deployment <laughs> sequence <secrets> over <laughs> over a holiday, you know, for for years where you've got people on their their, their on tenterhooks just waiting to see, you know, are the mirrors going to deploy? Um, is this gossamer uh, layer? Of Mylar going to going to unfold properly not just one layer, but five of them and uh, uh, You know, is it going to be sensitive enough? The fact that that went off swimmingly, you know speaks well of at least the design and the testing that They did it was a very rocky road Um, They 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 almost got canceled uh, When they when they tested it, they shook screws loose Uh, the early days They ripped the the Sun shield, um, but they were able to get through all that and uh, what they learned from this mission could lead to a telescope designed to look for another Earth, specifically that is even larger. That maybe comes together with different different telescopes assembling in space. And uh, and at the, as we speak now, even larger rockets are being designed and tested that could then launch those those bigger missions. And so the engineering feat alone will will lead to new missions that we're going to be able to to look into
2: that's really exciting because i think to put this in lay geek terms uh i feel like this telescope is is kind of a transformer right like it, <laughs> it, it, it was launched and it kind of expanded and grew you're talking about a voltron
3: that's talking, right you're, you're, that's a right.
2: voltron of a telescope that would be even bigger more powerful and i am fully on board for that uh for both you guys too like we we've put so much time into this telescope. There's such a huge investment in it. How long will it actually last? Um, I've seen a whole bunch of estimates. I heard the launch was like really efficient. So maybe it could last longer than we expected. What's the lifespan we're expecting now?
4: Minimum was five years. That was NASA's. Mm -hmm. If it lasted five years, NASA's like, cool, mission accomplished. Really would have liked 10 years. They're saying 20 years right now.
2: Yeah.
3: Wow. Yeah, and twenty years now. That 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 is contingent on funding, uh, as always, right? Because when they when they do, do their budget, it's it's for whatever that primary mission is. What we've seen with Hubble is that if everything is working working well, chances are they're going to get the the funding, especially when you've already put ten billion dollars into it. Um, but unlike Hubble. Uh, the, the big risk here is just the, the actual equipment itself. Now, I think we would all be over the moon if, if it lasts 20 years, but we can't we can't send astronauts to go and fix it like they did with Hubble. You know, when Hubble first launched, it had blurry vision because of a mirror defect and they had to send astronauts up to basically give it some contacts. Um and then they did that over and over. Uh, I think four or five more times uh, to make it bigger, to make it or to make it better and and even more uh, more powerful. Uh, and that, that's what we've got up there now. They can't do that with James Webb, so they had to make it as powerful as possible from the get go, um, kind of like a Swiss Army knife as opposed to an upgradable uh, uh, computer that you that you put you 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 might have. So uh, twenty years, I think that would be amazing. Uh, it sounds like they've got the fuel to do it, uh, and barring something. Uh, surprising, like a, a a really bad solar for- storm, things like that. Um, you know, we've 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 seen in the past that this technology te- seems to be um, uh, robust enough to, to 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 keep itself going.
2: Gotcha. And you know, aside from its own equipment failures, I'm wondering, like, this is a this is a poor, lonely telescope out in the middle of nowhere. You know, there's nothing protecting it. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, between the Earth and the Sun. There's so many other things that could go wrong. Should we be worried about space junk? Should we worry, be worried about solar flares like you were talking about? Like, what, what else could get in the way of this thing or potentially harm it?
4: Generally, space junk isn't too big of an issue just because of how far out it is. Right. Micrometeoroids are a problem, um, mm-hmm. but the telescope's designed to withstand them. The sunshield can function even with t- rips and tears in it. You know, The mirror, part of the reason it's so big is because it can function with some you know defects um oh, okay okay mm-hmm. so yeah solar flares Harik, you might know more about that than me
3: yeah so, so solar flares it depends on how strong it is and and how 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 direct it is now when it's aimed right at Earth and they're the strongest ones these are like uh, the strongest solar flares they are they can cause uh communications issues and whatnot we have seen them affect um, spacecraft in transit before Japan lost uh, lost a mission to Mars. Uh, because of a uh, uh, In part because of a, a solar flare, but these are all things that swap mentioned that they really do build into it They have these space-hardened computers. They have um, uh, Redundant computers. There are some things that they couldn't make redundant. And I think that's probably the biggest risk to this mission um, There's something you mentioned about the 300 plus things that that had to go right for deployment of those about 80 85 are left and those are things that they can't change for the life of the mission, so those have to keep going uh, correctly. Things like some some certain hardware that that uh, that stabilizes the the, the vehicle itself um, that they 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 just don't have a, a backup for. I think that's going to be the biggest risk because everything else uh, is uh, the the solar flares, the space environment. They've had sixty plus years of experience with with all of the other missions to date, um, and they've been able to account for what they think uh, that the James Webb will have to to survive.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I think you guys gave us like a good wrap up of like everything going on with James Webb. I'm wondering, like, what are you what are you hoping for it to accomplish over the next few years, few decades? And what do you think it'll lead to for NASA and for other space agencies?
3: I think, you know, one of the, the big things I want to see from the images, and uh, I was really surprised when I read the, the description of what they were hoping to do, is that da- the galaxies that we see today, that we all familiar with these spiral galaxies, these kind of weird amorphous galaxies that they might've had different shapes when they, when they first formed that, that, uh, that the way that galaxies form now might be different than how it actually did in the beginning of, of, um, of the the universe's kind of collection there. And I'm wondering what those are. Are they squares? Are they, are they star shaped, you know, (laughs) (laughs) is it a pinwheel? Is it a, 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 you know, three-dimensional type thing? Uh, I, I would really like to see one of that, like a really wild, galaxy uh, uh type, something new that we hadn't seen before. Um I like all that new stuff there. Swapna. So
4: <laughs> yeah, I am just so curious about the early universe, the period of reionization, you know, what 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 did our universe look like as it was forming? And you know, what can we learn about that? And so that's really I want to see those earliest stars. I like Tariq, I want to see those earliest galaxies. Um I'm just I am so, I I think I will be excited no matter what we see because i'm just such a fan of seeing this stuff but i would i'm really really excited to see that that earliest light
2: mhm i feel like i'm right there with you guys too because i remember when i was a kid in elementary school what i do is i'd go to the library and just check out all the space books and just spend a lot of time staring at the hubble imagery and imagery you know from earlier missions too I could just imagine like if this thing was successful, like how it would inspire future generations. Uh looking at how people share bad space, like CG space photos, you know, the, the like fake space imagery, that always gets shared all over, you know, Twitter and the internet. I can just imagine like how how NASA could do if they had like really great accurate imagery that could be shared out there and make people, I don't know, think about their place in the universe. That'd be nice. Yeah, you
1: scare a lot now, of people. <laughs> We're like, it's sure, so vast sure. and empty out there. Okay. It's so vast. Oh, no. <laughs>
2: Uh, thank you so much, Tarek and Swapna, for joining us to talk about this. And hopefully we'll get you guys back on, um, you know, as we ha- hit some James Webb milestones. Hopefully five or six months we'll get some actual imagery to talk about. Uh, where can we find you guys on the internet these days, Tarek? Uh,
3: well, uh, I, I'm uh, at, at space.com. You can find you find me at, at Tarek J. Malik at, on Twitter or at space, space.com and at space.com on Twitter and Facebook <laughs> and all of those things. So uh, just keep looking up. Cool. And Swapna?
4: I am on Twitter way too much at S Krishna. I'm on TikTok at Swapna underscore Krishna. And um I you can find me writing around the internet, cover chart at starchart.com. I write about video games at Wired, so just kind of, you know, I am everywhere. <laughs> Doing cool
2: stuff. I I have been really enjoying your TikTok, Swapna. So hopefully Thank I you. hope you keep those up. They're a lot of fun. And TikTok is a great platform to like I love it for bite-sized information like mm-hmm. this. So
4: I'm really enjoying it.
2: Great, great. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Let's move on to the biggest story of the week, and honestly, of the year, and maybe the decade. Microsoft announced that it's buying or plans to buy Activision Blizzard for sixty-eight point seven billion dollars so close to 69 billion yeah i mean i <laughs> nice. feel like th- they're they're so so close to being truly nice but to dive into this and tell us what is going on here is senior editor jessica Condit, who covers video games and gadget hello jess hello hello yeah this is big news let talk about it. <laughs> it's big news. And uh, by the way, like uh, Jess has written a piece for us in Gadget called Microsoft consolidating the video game industry is bad for everybody, uh, is bad for everyone. That is very clear just there. So be sure to read Jess's piece. But uh, Jess, I have to ask, why is it bad for everyone? Right.
0: So, I mean, bad for everyone in this case means bad for both developers and for players. Mm-hmm. in In my kind of extrapolation of how this plays out uh this is a larger trend there are there are large large studios buying large publishers large developers there and mm-hmm. all these studios are becoming consolidated under Microsoft or Sony or uh you know Tencent Valve wh- whatever Tencent, yeah. all these big studios that can actually spend money um so i think it turns out poorly for everyone involved because when Okay, exclusivity deals are how the, how the industry works, right? Like this is where competition comes from right now. It's Sony pays extra to have a, a, a game on only PlayStation consoles, or Xbox pays for just on Xbox consoles, or it's a limited release situation, all these things. This is how developers are able to advocate for their games, get some more money, you know, get that pipeline rolling. Um, so this kills that because Activision, who owns Activision Blizzard, who owns Call of Duty, Overwatch, Diablo, World of Warcraft, massive, massive franchises.
2: Yeah. They King's mobile games. They acquired King a couple of years ago. Yes, yeah. and that
0: is huge for them. Mobile gaming is huge. People were surprised, like, oh, why'd they even mention King? It's a big part of their business plan. And it's, it's gonna be huge for Microsoft yeah. as well. They're they're very much into cross-platform within the Xbox ecosystem. So so now, where Activision used to be able to kind of pitch Call of Duty to, you know, to Sony and Microsoft and kind of figure out what will work best for Call of Duty as a game, now Microsoft is going to be in control of that. Um, Does this mean that Call of Duty is going to be exclusive to Xbox platforms? Not right away. I don't think so. Uh, It's definitely going to give Call of Duty an edge on Xbox platforms. It's going to be the place to play these games. Um, And eventually, which
2: that's how things were like a decade ago, right? Like when Microsoft was the big Call of Duty marketing partner, it is also weird how it's not exclusivity, but the company that helps to market some of these big games, it used to be Xbox. And I think a lot of people had associated Xbox with Call of Duty and then it switched over to Sony at some point. I'm not sure if gamers even notice it's more of like a rep thing, but yeah, yeah, it's gonna be a lot of that again. Xbox, uh, Call of Duty is best on Xbox, right? It it
0: kills that entire back and forth where it was Mm -hmm. Xbox, then PlayStation, and you didn't really know. And you were like, okay, where's the game going to be? Like, which, hey, that's maybe not the best way for players to be involved in the industry anyway, but I (laughs) I get it. Um, But, you know, honestly, aside from, like, exclusivity shit, which, yeah, is an issue. um, we'll, We'll deal with that, though. Like, the biggest thing for me is when these huge, huge companies control basically the entire software development pipeline for mainstream games, uh, they're all gonna start to look the same. I know that these developers have some autonomy. They have some creative freedom, like built into their contracts, but they're all reporting to the same bosses. They all come from the same corporate structure. They all have the same QA process, marketing routine. You know, all these things are gonna be the same, and that is going to impact development. When all these studios are owned by one entity, they're gonna start to feel stale. I truly believe that. I think we're gonna see it. Um, that doesn't kill the indie industry. The indie industry is still there, but this makes it harder for smaller games to stand out because there's so much money now behind these huge studios already. Uh, it's just it kind of it kind of saturates the market, um, and indie studios are gonna have to participate in a new way. Um, it, it really changes the game this is a new era
2: on the flip side though i don't i don't know if activision has always been the best steward of these franchises absolutely not either, right like i think <laughs> activision has also proven to be kind of a bad company when it comes to corporate culture we've talked about that and uh, around the ceo bobby Kodak and everything um there is so much going on right now like is this deal like the first thing i First, I, I woke up Tuesday morning. Uh, I was off last week. Uh, we had um, Monday off as well from our Luther King Jr. Day. So it's just like big. Like uh, I don't, I don't want to come back in. I see this news roll in, and I just like shoot up awake. Mm-hmm. Like I drank five coffees. It's like holy crap! This is a lot of money. This is Microsoft's biggest deal ever. It is the biggest all cash deal in gaming ever, too. I believe. Like it is. The biggest deal in yeah, biggest acquisition in gaming. Also, one of, yeah, all in terms of all cash deals, I believe like one of the biggest ever in America. Uh, it is freaking freaking huge and has like lasting impacts. And the the first thing I thought is like freaking Bobby Kotick is gonna get like some sort of parachute out of this, and that is essentially it. like he's gonna make hundreds of millions as this deal clears as part of this. I almost wonder like how, we. I've seen some reporting. We don't know how much of this is certain, but. Is um, you know Activision Blizzard's problems? It's uh, tanking stock a little bit because of all these uh, because of all the issues around Bobby Kotick. Um, was that one reason why Microsoft was like, "Let's let's just go now. This is the cheapest we'll ever get." Activision, well, right? I think
0: it's the flip. I think Activision, like you said, mm. has not been a very good steward of these franchises, and Activision was looking to sell. I truly believe that. Yeah. And I think Microsoft yep. was the only option they had. This is the only company in gaming in the western world, I would say, that has the cash flow, has the network to actually buy Activision Blizzard, to spend 69 billion dollars nice. And like that that's <laughs> that is something that Sony can't do, but like this is this is why this is so shocking. It's because of the size of this deal. It's like Sony is also buying studios. Absolutely. Like this is happening. This is not just Microsoft, but so, Sony is massive. more
2: piecemeal. So yes. Sony is like, yeah, picking and choosing. I'm like, Oh, take you. Microsoft was just like, I'm buying this entire All store. Like give me everything. And we've seen yes. how
0: long Microsoft studios, Xbox game studios, those games take a while to come out. <laughs> like, I don't know if this is exactly going to speed up the pipeline. Um, but Hey, I do well, think that, that, Activision that's needs one thing- innovation. So yeah.
2: I mean, at the very least, like it could mean different, certainly different leadership for the people at Activision. So maybe it's a better thing for them overall. We don't, we don't know. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. Uh, the reporting around this, uh, the announcement was that like Bobby Kodak will be sticking around with Activision as part of this deal. And then there was future, there was like other reporting from the Wall Street Journal that was like, yeah, he, no. he will leave. Like he will leave as soon as this compl- completes, but he will get a lot of he money. He will leave in a golden too, parachute
0: so. and he is being rewarded yep. for creating a culture yep. of gender discrimination and sexual harassment at one of at one of the largest studios in in the entire world. This is I, I and think he'll it's face no disgraceful. Like his
2: consequence yeah, yeah, is money. Yeah. His
0: consequence is leaving and being rich forever. And I I truly think that's gross. I think Microsoft should have done more there, but once again, like we were saying when we talked about the Activision scandal when it was breaking, Kodak's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. He controls the board. Mm-hmm. He controls Activision. He is yep. that studio. And this is just proof of that.
2: The board supports him, too. So I almost wonder if like, this was the best possible outcome for them, too, because they're like, well... We're not. We're not gonna fight our guy. You know, like what can we do? The save space uh, for him. I, it's it's safe space. Yeah. So so Kod- here's my
1: here's my question, which is if Bobby Kodak is gonna leave with a golden parachute and everyone else that's staying behind, I guess is going to is, is supportive of him. Do you think they're all gonna leave after Microsoft takes over, or or no one supports him. They're gonna stay. <laughs> the developers okay. there so do not support the board the, sh- the board that were right not the developers mm. but like the people that were on the board apparently didn't want to do anything about him um like penalizing or punishing him are those people going to work well with microsoft then
2: the board just tends to like disappear yeah. with acquisition right because you don't have multiple boards mm-hmm. once you yeah on i think something. they just get bought yeah. out. so they're just gonna they're, They th- no gone. longer
1: have shares mm-hmm, or I own think- right okay they're happy about this. So everyone what gets they, they wanted. rewarded. Yeah, basically. they're they're very very happy right now. Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. All the people at the top are winning, and we're gonna figure it out. The rest of us. Yeah,
2: it's like a mafia ring where y- you all win. Basically, like they'll they'll make this mess, and uh, the people up top will will win everything. Let's talk about you know. So yeah, it, not great, not great for video game culture. Not great for basically rewarding Bobby Kotick. What does this mean? more broadly from Microsoft? Because I saw some early headlines. It was like, Microsoft is preparing for the metaverse. And Stop, everyone. Please, my We God. all <laughs> rolled our eyes. We're like, the metaverse doesn't exist. <laughs> no. Like, just calm down. Gaming, like the gaming industry exists right now. It's really big. And I think that's the big thing here. Is this really all about Game Pass? Because that is kind of where I'm landing on it, right? Like, it is, to me, it seems like Microsoft's just like, Game Pass is already the best deal in gaming. How about all of your favorite games from Activision. You know, how about um, Call of Duty being immediately available on uh, on Game Pass day one, uh, whereas maybe they'll continue to sell it on PlayStation, but th- those suckers got to pay $60 for it, you know? Or maybe, maybe I-, I think the thing I kind of envision more is like the free Warzone Call of Duty, like the free multiplayer, will probably continue to be everywhere just kind of like how Microsoft sells Minecraft everywhere, because it is better to have that plat, better to have it available widely. Uh, but maybe the single player or other like more innovative things are just like, you got to come to Xbox for that. If you want the campaign, you have to come to Xbox. Uh, I've also heard people talking about like, would Microsoft try to push game pass to other companies, right? Like Sony is struggling. What if Microsoft was just like, Hey buddy, uh, let, let, let Game Pass be on your platform. We will pay you a lot of money for that, and everybody wins. Well wow. I don't know what that possibility is either. Well, Sherlyn, what do you got there?
1: No, I'm just, I'm just like, I don't think, I don't think Microsoft would do that. It's, it's a short story.
0: I and okay, so Sony and Microsoft are actually partnering on cloud gaming already. Sony is signed up to leverage Microsoft's cloud network for its own kind of like cloud and and streaming services. Um, so in terms of Microsoft trying to expand Xbox Game Pass to PlayStation that seems a little far fetched to me maybe one day but Xbox has That that's what I said yeah. about this deal. No you're this right. This is a little right. far fetched. And this is a new this <laughs> is this is what I mean by this is a new era like we're just seeing it this has already been in progress this has been happening but now this is a very public show of yo we're in this new era where consolidation is the game we're going to start seeing these platforms diverge but also come together in ways that we didn't expect so i think clearly microsoft is focused on game pass and bringing the xbox ecosystem to as many platforms as possible and connecting them all you know through cloud gaming and through all these these connections I mean, maybe one day they would try to sell Sony on Game Pass. What, what but if what it was would, like
2: Game Pass? What would Sony yeah.
0: get out of that? What if it
2: was only first-party stuff? Like, for, forget about all the third-party stuff on Game Pass. What if, like, Microsoft was just like, yeah, hey, we will bring first-party Microsoft titles to Sony via Game Pass or something, or even to to Nintendo, because they would never. It seems like anything <laughs> is possible at this point. Nintendo's already like pushing cloud gaming for like a couple of times. Yeah, right? they're they're into yeah, cross platform. Sony Sony
0: doesn't like cross platform, so that's why I'm a little like Sony. I don't know. Sony is on a very different path than Microsoft. Um, they are still collecting studios. They just don't have the buying power that Microsoft does. They're just on a different trajectory. And Microsoft is very focused on the future. This is part of building that that ecosystem future that Microsoft wants. And it feels like, you know, I was cheering Microsoft on when they bought, you know, Bethesda and all the the five studios before that. I was like, sweet, they're building up an internal repertoire. It's great. But this is something different. This really, Activision is something different.
2: It is. I mean, this is, I think in my lifetime, like one one of those big pieces of gaming news that will fundamentally change the landscape of like what this industry looks like moving forward. So people pay attention to this if you don't normally... If you don't normally care about like business news, um, sometimes it's important, especially when it will completely change the tides of a whole industry. Uh, Jess, we are hearing that Sony, like Sony, is working on something, right, to like revamp, uh, PlayStation Now, make something into like a Game Pass alternative. What is going on there? And y- y- you point out, like, yeah, they're just very different things, right? Like, what Sony does is basically pour a lot of money into, like, big single-player AAA campaigns, right? Like, things that look really pretty, uh, things that look like blockbuster movies, whereas Microsoft is just trying all sorts of different things right now and I feel like hasn't really landed on an identity as a publisher. Um, But, like, what is Sony doing versus, you know, to to take on Game Pass at this point?
0: Well, they're definitely not revamping the Vita, which will forever be a tragedy Uh, in, in my mind. And maybe there'll be a video or article coming up about that soon. We'll see. Um, so Sony is on a very traditional console upgrade cycle path, right? Like the PS5 is, is clearly just the next generation of the PlayStation console line. It's powerful. It's incredibly beautiful. It can, it can power amazing games. Um, and then they have their internal studios and they're they're delivering, yes, beautiful first party games. This is just how it's been done um sony has dabbled in you know playstation now cloud gaming back in the day they were the first ones like with gaikai they were trying to really bring cloud gaming to the masses but the oh, network I remember was not yes remember yeah. that remember <laughs> ouya just on a tangent ouya the mm-hmm. little micro mm-hmm. console i have
2: one it's right but be- it's right behind me. i love yeah. that
0: i love that and then well see then sony had like the ps vita tv which was like kind of like a micro console there were things they could have done um either way sony is is very kind of stuck in this traditional rut, it feels like. And they're a little scared mm-hmm. to innovate is how it feels. I don't know if Sounds they... Sounds like Sony. It, I know, right? And I don't know if they have something cool planned around cloud gaming, because if they are partnering with Microsoft, we haven't heard what they're doing with that technology that they apparently have access to now. So maybe there is something coming, and it could really turn turn the tides for Sony. But they need to engage in this this ecosystem fight that's happening, you know?
2: This this reminds me so last year I wrote a piece called Can Sony Reclaim Its Former Glory which was all about Sony's Sony used to be the market leader for consumer electronics they used to be the apple of the world and then Apple came and kind of stole their lunch but a large part of that is because Sony also refused to innovate in the 90s right like for for all for decades Sony had the best CRT televisions they had the trinitron screen you know and they kind of owned that market and then the '90s, people started like dabbling in LCDs and flat panels, and Sony was like, "Nah, nah, nah, nah. We're not gonna, we're not gonna deal with that for a while." And that came back to bite Sony in the butt. Come like the 2000s when the move to HD TV was happening, um, Sony was overinvested in CRT. Sony didn't have enough, like, was not ready to move to HD flat panel TVs, and that hurt them forever. So, sure, you see Sony TVs out there now, but they're they're not the market leader. You know, that's TCL. That is like a lot of the companies that kind of started young and fresh and were able to produce these things more cheaply with more like innovation than Sony was. And, you know, w- when I wrote that article, I don't know if I told you guys this, but Sony PR like called me that morning. It was like, hey, man, what's up with this? And I'm like, show me the lie. Yeah. Show me the Do lie. you have a Sony. correction? And <laughs> yeah, no. Are your they feelings actually called? Called you? That's funny. Yeah, yeah. They called me and I was like in the middle of a video shoot. I was like, no, no, no. You're like, yeah, it, it's there. It's more like my phone. Their feelings were hurt. And also, I asked for them to talk about that article and they, they didn't want to talk at that point. So, anyway, um, but it does seem like that is the thing for Sony, right? To like get to a point where they're kind of a market leader, they're doing really well. And then when it comes time to like, change and innovate and be different sort of like what game pass is doing game pass is a subscription you pay a pretty low monthly fee you pay a monthly fee and you get access to tons of games hundreds of games day one access to first party titles um to me the whole idea of buying a physical like buying a game just doesn't make sense anymore when game pass is around i found myself waiting on pc titles and things i wanted to play until it hits like game pass because why spend Why spend that sixty bucks unless it's for a developer I really love or like an indie developer that I fully want to support? All, the economics of buying new games at full price just doesn't make any sense anymore. And I, Sony, like, if things continue this way for the next five years, I don't know how Sony will, can keep asking people to do that. Basically, well,
0: and yeah. like even in terms of innovation and and what you're talking about, even in the PS4's lifecycle, like PS3, PS4, PS5. Sony was, like, kind of stole the indie crown from Xbox back in the day. I wrote an article about how Sony has just lost the indie market. I think it was E3 2018. Uh, it's, on, it's on a gadget. Um, and it's, it's where Sony was killing it with indie games. We were, like, you know, it was, it was just hands down. Microsoft dropped the ball. Sony was killing it. And then Sony just stopped. You know, and it's like, Why? You you had something that everyone why? loved. Why? Same with the Vita. Like yeah, why <laughs> you have this thing? Why stop? Why stop? Like we were we were loving it. Why would you just totally abandon this? But it it comes down to it looks like fear. You know, on the outside it looks like fear of of trying something new and and really going all in on a new idea. Um, so that sucks.
2: I think the best response to this that i saw um on twitter was basically like after this it was sony's reaction to the activision microsoft deal was a picture of james franco from spider-man and his line saying all i have now is spider-man oh
0: my i did <laughs> like not that's see basically, that that's hilarious that's it. yes that's
2: yes. yeah and we're just keeping sony afloat is sony pictures and demon souls but PlayStation is a big part of Sony's revenue, and Spider Man, Sony Pictures, is doing really well. But that's beyond it. Beyond that, like that, that is kind of what is keeping that company afloat. Um, we kind of like dismissed the idea of the metaverse early on, but I do want to say, like, having more developers is not a bad thing. If Microsoft had more teams and more like bodies, um, would Halo Infinite have had a full year delay? You know, I, I do think like things like that, prepping Microsoft to push things out, maybe faster without crunching people too much, um, or at least being more efficient about how it can build these things and being ready for, I don't know, I don't, what's coming next. The I'm VR sorry. World. Like, yeah,
0: I got to push back on that. I think bigger means slower. Bigger is slower. Straight up, like we've seen, Me. we've seen this. I don't know a- red tape. Yeah, like Activision has figured right. out a way to churn out Call of Duty every year because they have three different studios working on the games in cycles. But where's the innovation? Those games have been stale for years. You know, it's like there's, it's slow and you know slow and fast and whatever the you can pick two of the three. I, I just don't. I don't think big is necessarily gonna mean that games are coming out faster. I really don't.
2: Yeah. I, I think Halo Infinite was just a cursed project to begin with. Like it was like started, it was start and stopped, and like had had creative reboots. And we're seeing like there's a lot of story elements that are still like in in the game that they just kind of just never touched on. So it's just one of those things. I do wonder like if they threw more bodies at it, could it be better? Uh, or could it be more complete? But that game already has the not. most
0: bodies on it and the most money. But you know, it's the thing. It's like when when something gets that big. How do you be creative in that space when you have fifty people checking everything and changing everything and making it look exactly the same? I just that's how it goes. Yeah, yeah. 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 But hey, Microsoft is now Disney, so there you go.
2: Microsoft is now Disney. But you know what? In that vein, so there's there's a sort of like uh, corporate homogenization there in terms of creativity. But meanwhile, you know what? I really like The Mandalorian. I just started watching The Book of Boba Fett, right? And I think in a normal ip environment um there is no room to tell these like just really small stories about kind of like minor characters with big budgets like expand like these shows look like movies right they have the full weight of disney behind it so i do wonder like what do you think like there's any positivity uh to come from activision stuff being under microsoft like if a, if a developer doesn't have to worry about selling a certain amount of copies if like game pass is their primary delivery module does that leave more room for creativity to take wider, wilder chances rather than, you know, give up in a game if it's not going to sell much.
0: Wilder chances, according to a very strict marketing schedule. You know, it's like, it's like the way, even with Riot stuff, like all the league of legends stuff that just launched exciting, cool, but God, it feels, feels like riot. Doesn't it? Like, it's just like, I don't know. Um, Like Arcane is cool. So I'm I'm just kind of, I'm drawing comparisons just because it's on top of my mind. Arcane is cool. So what if we saw something like that, but we're already getting a Halo TV show. I just, I don't know if this benefits the the whole, yeah, I know. I don't know if this benefits necessarily the creative process. I I truly don't. I I hope that there is more money for cool, weird stuff, but I honestly will always believe that that's going to be in the independent market. That's going to be outside of these these corporate structures. I bet we'll get some amazing games with, with cool mechanics and, you know, they'll use features of the consoles that are very, very interesting. But I, I really think that the future of games is in the independent creative market. I, I I really do. I will always believe that. And this is antithetical to that. So I think that's why I kind of, I don't feel great about it.
2: I fully, I fully hear you, Jess. And, uh, You know, I guess we will see. There's still a lot we don't know about this deal. Uh, Microsoft says it's expected to close. If if it has to get through regulatory approval, which is a thing we we will continue to track. But if everything goes smoothly, they don't expect it to close until like the middle of 2023, which is, I believe, like the end of their fiscal year. So this there's like a long runway to this thing. Uh, It kind of has to go through a lot of approval to get there, and I. I think given the current landscape of uh, mergers and acquisitions in the US, like, yeah, there's really not much stopping it. I know the FTC has been talking about having stricter rules around this stuff, but I, they haven't really shown teeth yet, you know? So we will see what happens. This this could end up not happening at all. But I think based on the industry so far, like, yeah, there, there's really nothing stopping Microsoft here. Um, and I hope this doesn't mean like, ultimately bad things for the video game industry overall because you know there is a lot of consolidation happening this is just like the biggest this is like throwing a huge boulder into the small pond of like uh the gaming industry right now so it is this is going to have rippling effects for many many years jess anything you want to add like what are you going to be keeping an eye on what are you looking forward to um you know hearing more about this deal. i
0: like i do want to say i don't think it's this is the end of video games as we know it. You know, this is not this is yeah, not yeah, the death knell yeah, yeah. of the industry. It's just, it's a big change. And that's that's really all I'm kind of responding to here. This is a, a very big deal. It is gonna change how business is done in games. Um, well it the business has already changed. This is just the public-facing effect of it. Um, looking forward, I'm looking for Overwatch 2. I don't care how it happens. I hey. want it. How,
2: how, <laughs> so how long have we been waiting for Overwatch 2? And now imagine like it'll take so long that Overwatch 2 will be a Microsoft production. That is fine. We did not see Just that coming when me. that when that game was announced. I know.
0: I have to like I play on PS5, but I'm switching to Xbox now. I'm uh-huh. gonna be on. I'm gonna get my <laughs> rank on my Xbox up because that's where all the good stuff's gonna be now.
2: Eh. There's no there's no shared rank at this point for Overwatch?
0: Oh probably if I linked my accounts somehow but I've two different yeah, accounts
2: yeah, already yeah. so I just There you go. When was Overwatch 2 announced? Oh like 3 years ago I swear. It feels like
0: Yeah, I swear. Yeah. 2 or 3 years ago.
2: Between the issues yeah the issues they've had and all we hear is delays and like changing what that game will be. Um yeah, Microsoft will be the Overwatch and World of Warcraft and Call of Duty and Halo Diablo, company. I mean That is just Wild and Diablo Diablo just wild to think about.
0: Dia in terms of Diablo, like they have mobile ambitions too, right? Like and I think this, this entire deal with, with Xbox being, you know, cross platform really on mobile devices as well with the cloud and, and Game Pass and all that, it's like this there's a lot it makes a lot of sense it's just mm-hmm. you know. we we
2: didn't talk much about this but yeah microsoft has like very little presence in mobile gaming like aside from like minecraft being out there they did try minecraft earth is that ar project and that died because of the pandemic um i hope they bring that back and maybe i don't know maybe we will see what else happens uh, microsoft will also own king
1: right king is everywhere
2: <laughs> king is everywhere king is what people are playing on their phones all their time thanks to candy crush and everything so anyway we will be keeping an eye on the story Thank you so much, Jess, for breaking it down with us. Uh, where can people find you on the internet these days?
0: On Instagram, Jess El Condit, and Twitter, Jess Condit. We'll See you there.
1: Moving on to what we've been working on i just got back from time off so there's a lot of uh catching up that i've been doing but uh, things are already going to ramp up uh you and i are both checking out sundance which is kicking off today as of this recording officially but we've been doing press previews and whatnot um and then there's events coming up that i can't tell you but i'm doing a lot of preparation for uh mobile news let's just say is about to heat the f up so <laughs> we're going to
2: please stop get ready for please all stop that. mobile news
1: i know i know
2: do we know anything about mobile world congress yet like it probably i've been be getting virtual. the pitches
1: uh apparently yeah. there's some sort of show going on whether it's a hybrid fully virtual In person only, which is a stupid idea uh, show. We don't know yet, but I I know that I'm not planning on traveling yet. Um, But we will definitely cover the news as they get to us so that you guys or gals or individuals can also (laughs) um, keep updated with the news. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming up to to prep for you dev
2: same same deal pretty much like uh, i'm focusing on sundance basically Sherlene and i are splitting up like what we're gonna chase after on sundance but i have seen the movie we met in virtual reality so you could go check out the trailer for that we're gonna have an interview with the director uh next week on this podcast so stay tuned for that i found it to be really fascinating but we'll talk more Next week, and uh, keep an eye out for a written piece at Engadget as well oh, about yeah. that. And, uh, you know, th- there are a bunch of movies at Sundance that I'm really excited for. Yes. No, like, major releases, but I- I'm always, like, open for, like, big surprises. Yeah,
1: they always surprise us about, the- at Sundance, with, like, last-minute additions. Like, the Nicolas Cage film, Pay the Devil, <laughs> last year it was just thrown on suddenly, and then...
2: You know, prisoners of the Ghostland.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah, sorry, yes, that one. What? Was that it, or was it? P- it was. It was
2: kind of thrown on a little lever. There, there was another one. There was Maybe a Japanese that was one that I'm one. thinking of. The that one one where was Prisoners of a... the Ghost Land. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh boy. And uh, it was. It was fine. Not, yeah, that was not the best not... Nicolas Cage mm-hmm. movie last year. Nope, not uh-huh. at all. Whereas Pig was fantastic. I haven't seen that one. Uh, But yeah, oh, okay. that's. You should watch Pig. Uh, everybody should watch Pig. That's what we've been working on. I want to hear about your pop culture picture, Liz. Yeah.
1: So okay. For, I, d- during my break, I was able to catch up with a lot of shows. And one of them was Eternals. I finally got to see Eternals. I um Yay. Uh um, I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I have. A I lot feel like of,
2: this is a movie better on a big screen. But yes, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, I, 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 as with most Marvel movies, I enjoyed it. I didn't. I didn't have many bones to pick, other than I think it was a little kind of all over the place. But then you have a show that's an ensemble cast of like ten people. It kind of is like hard to be too focused anyway. Um, I thought Rob Stark was great uh i also thought uh rob
2: stark and john and snow and john snow yeah exactly movie. i was like God. love
1: that they were both trying to date the same person great um name cersei The and same also person exactly name Cersei. cersei. We, i was like this can, is so cannot. game of thrones what are you doing to me uh and then train to It's Busan. like culture is so
2: small yeah.
1: yeah exactly it's like first of all they what well, i mean they all borrowed names here and there what i was just like having a very big game of thrones moment <laughs> um Rob Stark was basically Superman but they couldn't they said the word Superman maybe once or twice in the show itself and then that was all Superman, they Superman
2: as a DC Comics character exactly. exists in this Marvel movie too but which is also weird But as
1: Eternal I guess I I,
2: I think the jo- the joke is that oh, Superman was secretly based on this this character or like the legend of right character.
1: the legend yeah. of him or the whatever version of him exists in that world whether it's fictional or not because they never really say the kid just goes like I see you on TV or like whether it's a comic character or whether it's a real life in universe hero like the Avengers I don't, I don't, are. Yeah. you know what I mean
2: I think the whole point is that yeah it, it is supposed to be like just like a comic thing yeah I will say this movie has a lot in common with the old guard. Which I don't Oh, know yeah, I have seen that
1: one. Uh, what's, uh, and I think The
2: Old, guard, the old guard is a better movie, the Charlize Theron yeah. movie. And that is a better movie about basically timeless timeless warriors that have existed since for hundreds, potentially thousands yeah. of years, you know, and have been in all of our conflicts and have basically superpowers. Well, but... Uh, I mean, the yeah. old
1: guard didn't turn into Moana at the end, so, like, it was kind of, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> full-, full on became, like, I'm watching a cartoon right now? Like, what's going on? Oh, yeah.
2: Um, You're watching an MCU movie. Y- there has to be a big CG monster huge CG, and yeah. lasers. Oh, my God.
1: I mean, mm-hmm. Shang- Shang-Chi was the same. Um, uh, To... Quick shout out! I love Gemma Chan or Gemma Chan or however she pronounces her last name in this one, um, and I guess Don Lee is his name in uh, English name. I, I know the guy from him. Train to Busan. Exactly, yeah. I know him better with by his he he Korean of the
2: great name. arms. Oh in yeah. Train to Busan. Yeah. Oh yeah, I also yeah.
1: really appreciated the the deaf character. I can't pronounce her name McCart or something. You know what I mean? I can't get all their names right um but she, I, I like that you know seems like a lot of the character the actors learned some sign language for this role kumaya was incredibly like just hamming it up i think for the camera the whole time i felt like that was a yeah. thing anyway
2: worst bollywood sequence like worst i did not
1: enjoy bollywood the bollywood sequence. thing i was just like it this feels kind of forced
2: I started to wonder if it, like, that was the point, if it was supposed to be kind of, like, bad, but... Yeah, I mean, yeah. he had that face with the one yeah.
1: eye, one eyebrow cocked the entire time sort of thing, where I felt like it was definitely, like, hamming rather than actual...
2: There's, uh... Maybe, maybe we'll have spoiler talks for this at some point, but I, I do not like that my boy Kumail just disappeared oh, at yeah. the end of the
1: movie. Oh, yeah. For no reason. I did, I did <sighs> think that uh, Harish Patel, I believe, uh, was really great in it. Uh, he was Kingo's valet.
2: Yeah, he plays that character in a lot of different Yeah. Movies, so. it,
1: he, I mean, it's a, it's a role he's well suited and comfortable with, so, so that's great. And Angelina Jolie, obviously. So, um, But anyway, yes, yeah, so I saw Eternals. Liked it. Didn't hate it. Thought it could be better, maybe. But honestly, it was a fun ride. But my real recommendation, and if you follow me on Twitter, you will uh, know I've been enjoying Archive81. Um, it's a Netflix show based on a podcast series. Why? What? Devendra. And I'm nervous.
2: I, I'm just like wondering, like of all the things that you could be watching right now, you go to archive 81. Have you heard of it? Go on. Please go on.
1: I liked it. I will say I love and hate it. The problem is that I hate so much about it that I can't really like rewatch it too much. But I really like like a lot of elements of it that I'm like itching to watch it again and again. Um, this is a show about uh, uh, the protagonist is an archivist, and he's hired to restore some uh, damaged old tapes uh, that a grad student recorded uh, as her dissertation project back in 1994. These tapes were destroyed in a fire that took down a building called the. This, the Visser uh, in, I believe, New York, and it's a fictional building. Uh, and throughout the process of restoring, he learns about this person. He learns about some very supernatural hinky goings on at this building. This this is it's a, a horror, horror show, show to be based clear, on the right? occult. Supposed to be, yeah. It's I everything I love. Very supernatural. There is like, <laughs> you know, it, it's. I love it. I loved it. Was Exorcist meets, I don't know. MST3K, I don't but know. you also hate I, it. But I apparently. hate it for a few reasons. One, so the sound design is awesome in this. It it sent. There is one tune that go is featured in the show that really just grabs, like just settles into your brain and just sticks there. I love it. I can hear it in my head right now. I hate that one of the sort of main guest stars is a rat, and the rat's name is Ready. <laughs> like I don't need to Ratty. see a rodent on tv and i don't want to hear the squeaks so that's one of the things i hate about it the other thing is uh the 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 female protagonist i didn't enjoy her acting very much um dina uh is her first name i forget her last name i'm sorry um yeah uh she she does a very good job but i feel like parts of it are kind of overly intense um and also it's just the the writing is kind of weak in the sense that every character says fucking or fuck a little too much just like
2: <laughs> i mean th- this is a show based on a podcast the right podcast so it's, it's also sort is better. of like uh, the roots yeah. yeah the
1: podcast is really good um and the podcast creator it was involved in the produ- produ- production of this series so that's great but i just i i went and listened to the podcast after watching the show and i realized that it was just a lot richer it just had a lot more time to develop the story whereas this one it was just trying to do a lot at once it, it was good enough though to get me like very interested to learn more about this world and this lore that they've built so um anyway if you're into horror and that sort of stuff archive 81 is you had to put up with some quirks here and there if you don't hate rats you're better off than i am um but yeah i i i, I enjoy it it's a great
2: story Okay, great. I I will probably check this out eventually. It's just, there's so much other stuff, so many other things to watch, including Station 11, which finished uh, its season, probably is going to be its only season. Um, But, yeah, it's a limited series based on uh, an adaptation of the book. Uh, I talked about this before, I believe. It's a post-apocalyptic story about a flu that kills like 98% of the world's population, and what it's really about is about how society sort of recovers from it. So, I do want to say it starts really strong. Um, The first episode, a lot of people told me like, yeah, I don't really want to watch a like violent pandemic thing right now. And I totally get that. Um, I think the first episode is the most triggering uh, one because that's the one where people start to discover what's happening and they go into lockdown. They kind of do their things. And you see all the parallels from basically what we've gone through over the last few years. But then it is also a time hopping show that kind of goes back and forth in the timeline, like 20 years later to see how like society's rebuilding after this and kind of flashes back a little sort of like lost. Um, it focuses on a, uh, basically a troop of actors who go around and just do Shakespeare because that is like, that is one way to survive in in the end times. It's just like, let's let's hold on to the bits of culture we have and tell stories and try to like find humanity and the stories we've always told. Um, I love that idea at the beginning of the show, and every single episode of the show just like gets more and more interesting, and it is so well written, it is so well acted, and the basically the entire back half of this show, I was just a balling mess because it is it's very emotional in terms of like how people respond to the end of the world. And also in terms of like what these characters go through. And I feel like we can all relate to it right now. Like, Hey, me dragging my family from New York to Georgia to like be in like supposedly a safer place, or at least to have like a, like a, a an environment that's different from New York. Um, I feel a lot of that. And I feel like the way our lives have been reshaped and the way like we've had like have like come to terms with a new world. um, And we're still going dealing with the virus. um, There is so much to hold on to here. But I think the overall like message from the show is really hopeful and positive and like is like, yeah, maybe humanity will survive thanks to the stories we tell each other and we will support each other, you know, when we can. Like maybe it's not all doom and gloom, even if Mm -hmm. everybody's dying all around us. I don't know. That's the uh, takeaway I had from it. So I think it's really worth watching. I think you'd like it, Sherlin. And it is also like, yeah, it's Mm. deeply emotional. Like it it is like it makes you care about these characters. So I'm going to be reading this book. I've heard the book. Oh, I saw the book. I've heard the show is even better than the book. So I'm going to go back to kind of see like what the uh, like where this world kind of began and what the deeper structure of it is. But I really loved it. This is on HBO Max. So definitely worth checking out. I also wanted to bring up something a little lighter, a little more fun. And that is Peacemaker, the new show uh, also on HBO Max starring John Cena. And I have to say, like, I took my time getting to the show because I was like, first of all, uh, I love James Gunn. Um, I am not as into, like, the DC universe at this point. And I like James Gunn's Suicide Squad movie, but I also think Peacemaker did something a little unforgivable. I'd say like something I didn't something that's really, really bad for a character like that. And the show kind of reckons with that. Like it starts with him basically spending four years in jail for what happened in the suicide squad, but also in him basically being let down and betrayed by the country and him like reckoning with the fact that he is kind of a crappy dude. Like he is, he has made, he has killed people. Um, that probably he shouldn't have killed and he is kind of reckoning with that. Um this show is really funny. It's really profane. Like one of the uh one of the like opening sequences is like him just talking to a janitor and the jan- and uh, the janitor is played by Rizwan Manji. I believe mm. he was on the daily show at one at some point. And the janitor is like, "Yeah, you're that racist superhero, right? You're the one that only <laughs> kills brown people." And then and then Peacemaker's like, no, no, no. I just I just kill people that do wrong. And the janitor is like, no, no, no. Like you're paying attention to the brown people. Therefore, you are killing more of them because that's where your focus is. And Peacemaker's like, yeah, okay, I will pay more attention to other people so I kill, you know, proportionately. Is this great back and forth of like a character who is kinda of, kind of a mess, and a character who is kind of he's an anti-hero because he believes in justice at all costs. Um This show is a better James Gunn project than Suicide Squad is. And I think that's the main reason I dig it. It is allowed to be weird. It is allowed to be profane and super violent. And even though Suicide Squad was like an R-rated movie, I feel like it was still constrained a little um, and felt a little forced. Whereas the personality of the show is a lot of fun. So if you want something that is just like fun and profane and silly and you get to see John (laughs) Cena like having a huge fight in his tighty whiteys, um, this is really a masterclass It is John Cena being a really great comedian and a really great like leading star. So he is a lot of fun in this. It's definitely worth checking out. This is Peacemaker on HBO Max. I think it's worth a watch.
1: Well, that's it for the episode this week, everyone. Thank you, as always, for listening. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Davindra online at
2: At Davindra on Twitter and I chat about movies and TV at the filmcast at thefilmcast.com
1: If you will promise never to tweet me about rats I'm at Sherlyn Lowe on Twitter You will ask your thoughts at podcast at engadget.com Leave us a review please on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts including Spotify To
0: spend 69 billion dollars nice.